My name is Doris Mekani, Head of Partnerships and Advocacy at the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development in Action for Kenya, and welcome to the Triple OK Trade Podcast Series. This is a creation by Triple OK Law LLP, Kentrade, and Antedid Action Hub. And for our first episode, we are joined by the managing partner at Triple OK Law LLP, Senior Counsel Mr. John O'Hager, and the CEO at Kentrade, Mr. Amos Wagora. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much for having us. Great. Uh, Before I uh, introduce yourselves, allow me first to articulate the vision of this creation and the goal of this episode, Partnerships for the Decade of Action, because I know it is the first step in us realizing the vision for this creation and the goal of this episode, Partnerships for the Decade of Action. The goal, um, the Triple OK Trade podcast series and visions are to facilitate solution-oriented conversations between business leaders like yourself and young people like me to ensure that we stimulate new thinking and find new solutions that can be integrated by the business community to ensure that we rebuild more resilient and inclusive markets in a post-COVID-19 world. One of the most powerful things about partnerships is that it allows people to understand each other's sphere of influence. So I'm very excited to have both of you today for us to understand as thought leaders in your disciplines, how have you integrated partnerships to create a future that no one is left behind? So on that note, I think we're going to start introductions. And I feel like it's only fair that we start with the CEO of Kentra because we have set shop at Hansel's Law Firm. Therefore, it's only fair that our guest first introduces himself. Mm-hmm. Mr. Agra, please introduce thank yourself. You, thank you for first advantage. <laughs> uh, my name is Amos Wangora. I'm the CEO um, at Kentrade. Kentrade stands for the Kenya Trade Network Agency. Um, we are a government agency under the National Treasury. Um, we were formed in 2011 with a mandate of facilitating trade, but um, not in the traditional way, um, facilitating trade through d- digitization of um, government processes. Um, so we've set up um, a number of platforms. One of them is the TradeNet system, or rather the single window system. Um, which we manage and maintain. Um, we set it up um, commencing 2012 to around 2014 um, and have continuously then continued to uh, onboard government agencies um, onto the platform. So we have also set up what is called an info- information for trade portal um, with the realization that um, setting up a transactional system was not enough. The trade community needed to understand how do you um, transact, how do you import or export um, cargo into and out of this country? Um, so that lacuna in terms of information then um, needed to be um, to be filled out. So we've set up what is called the Information for Trade Portal, actually working with UNTAD um, and Trademark East Africa um, to do this. Um, so we built a, you know, so the kind of information you find on this portal is step-by-step information on how to import or export, um, you know, commodity-wise. So we picked commodities, started with the priorities, tea, coffee, our main exports. Um, then map that entire process. Um, how do you export tea, for example? Um, how many steps were required to export tea? Um, if you need a license, um, where do you get it from? Which government agency? How does it look like? What are the tariffs? How long does it take you? Um, to export, for example, um, tea. 
if I visit uh, one of the government agencies for a permit or a license, um, how long will I take on the queue? Um, so all that has been mapped. We now have about um, about 78 commodities now mapped on that portal. Um, and we continue to do that. But that has also given us, this still introduction, that has also given us um, <laughs> um, the, the ability to simplify. Because when we started mapping, um, so once we mapped it out per commodity, is when we realized the sheer number of steps that it takes. T, for example, and you can imagine it's you know our main cash crop, um, required 96 steps to export, yes? So, but you know, the challenge was it was not visible. All these steps were not, you know, but having them in one place um, then allows you to realize just how many steps um, it requires and who really is responsible for a lot of these steps. Now, so what we then have done is use that as an opportunity to simplify and reduce those steps. Most of them are redundant, administrative. Um, so it's an issue of engaging then all these government agencies to reduce um, these steps. Um, we've already reduced T to about six, 62 steps. 62. Yes. Um, and that process is ongoing. Of course, very tedious. Some of it has um, legislative, um, you know, some of the government agencies say that particular steps are embodied in their, in their, statutes. In their statutes. So you can imagine all that. Some of them, there's a lot of duplication among government agencies. Um, so of course, then it means then quite some work just to try and um, simplify a lot of this. Um, so those are the two main platforms, the trade net system um, and the information for trade portal um, that we run. Of course, then we are also looking at value additions, which we can talk um, talk about. But essentially, that's who can release. Thank you. Oh, perfect. And I think you do such important work because one of the things that um, is ongoing right now, the shift in the economy is that young people are at the forefront of the port industry. We are looking at more innovative ways for young people to trade. And I think, you know, shifting how global trade is being facilitated to an, um, I don't know, e-commerce platform yeah. is very important. So thank you for joining us. And before we dive into the conversation, have a conversation with you about partnerships, we will let the person that has allowed us to search shop to introduce himself. Oh, there is very, very interesting and very nice to hear that. Actually, I, I'm, I'm, I have to say, I didn't really realize what it is you're doing. But that, that window just tells me how difficult your job is, but also how important it is. Because you know, sometimes we sit in our ivory towers and don't really realize what it takes for Kenya to become attractive as a destination for investment and for us to to be able to trade with our partners. But um, you were asking about me. Yes. <laughs> um, so let me try. Um, my name is John O'Hagan, as you've already stated. I am the managing partner in the law firm of Triple OK Law. Um, my um, area of expertise is uh, dispute resolution. And so I will just try to describe very briefly the remit of my, um, my work and my experience. So at Triple OK Law, I, I do client work, and I, I have um, various clients, large corporations, state entities uh, as my clients. And in that area, I practice in the areas of litigation, 
arbitration and mediation principle. Um, now, in addition, I, um, I chair the Sports Disputes Tribunal. Um, and the Sports Disputes Tribunal for me is important because number one, I have a background as a sportsman. And, and so I really think that I understand the psyche, the makeup of the sports, the athlete, what environment they require to be able to perform, um, how to leverage their skills, and what, what, what we require to do as a country in order to ensure that we can move towards professionalizing sport. Because, you know, when you look at um, other countries, a sport is such a revenue driver, such um, 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 a platform for employment of young people. Yes. And I think that our potential here is not, um, has not been realized at all. We've not even started to scratch the surface. So as a chair of the Sports Disputes Tribunal, what I see my role being is to be able to inculcate a governance structure that enables us to be just to start on the pathway towards um, creating that environment. Um, now, separately, I sit on the board of the Nairobi Center for International Arbitration, yes. which is a state corporation um, whose role is to create an environment, um, make Kenya attractive as a destination for dispute resolution. Yes. Because you know, at the center of any trade initiative is dispute resolution. Yes. If you don't have an efficient, effective dispute resolution environment, then it's a disincentive for trade. Yes. It makes it expensive, it makes it uncertain, and unattractive, and, 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 attractive, and investors would rather go somewhere else. And so I sit there, I sit on the board, and um, we try our best to ensure that um, we can begin to get Kenya on those steps. Um, separately, I sit on the Mediation Accreditation Committee, which is uh, created under the Civil Procedure Act, which is the body that facilitates the court annexed mediation initiative in Kenya. As you know, mediation is gaining traction in Kenya, it's getting more and more. Um, more and more attractive as a forum for dispute resolution because number one, um, there is such a backlog yes. in our court structure that the courts will never be able to, uh, to clear that backlog. Mm. Um, secondly, we have to begin to realize as a country that actually most disputes are not resolved in the courtroom. They're resolved outside the courtroom by negotiation, by traditional means, by mediation. And so we are really working hard to try and create a culture of mediation. So instead of going to court, um, you find a way to resolve your dispute by compromise, essentially. Yes. Because um, if we insist on litigation, you know how many, number one, you were talking about the, the structures for, um, for, for, for just importing yes. tea, for instance. Yes. Well, not. Assuming you start with a dispute in the magistrate's court, then you've got an appeal to the high court. Yeah. Then you have an appeal to the court of appeal. And if the matter is important enough, you might have potentially an appeal to the Supreme Court. And those structures can take years to be able to, um, to exhaust. And so we try and, and, and ensure that we can cut that as short as possible. Now, sitting on the Mediation Accreditation Committee then also 
means that I also sit on the Judiciary's Task Force, Mediation Task Force, which is a body where we sit with, with judges, yeah. um, other players in the dispute resolution space to try and um, to try and ensure that we have the judiciary in tandem with the Mediation Accreditation Committee and other players in, an, in, in ensuring that the judiciary is well prepared to embrace, to accept mediation and to move away from the traditional mindset that disputes must be resolved by a judge or a magistrate hearing the dispute and delivering a decision. Um, um, now, based on my uh, my experience, my expertise, and so on, the Attorney General has then appointed me to chair the task force on the reform of the whole alternative dispute resolution framework within, uh, within Kenya. Um, so, based on that, or our, uh, the output of that uh, is my committee has been able to. Um, come through with amendments to the Arbitration Act, with a new mediation bill, with a new conciliation bill, a new adjudication bill, all of which are targeting different sectors, and all of which are geared towards um, facilitating a faster, more robust, more efficient dispute resolution framework. And we are hoping that once this comes on stream, because yes. you know there's a legislative process which we must go through, that um, it will give us a much more attractive dispute resolution environment and more choice, you know, sort of like a multi-door uh, dispute resolution um, forum. Yes. So you can choose horses for courses. What is most what is most appropriate for my dispute? What must make sense? If I'm in construction, yes. I want to go to adjudication because then there I'll find an expert who's well versed in my area. And who will determine this very quickly? Um, if um, it is an issue related to trade, perhaps arbitration is best placed, whether it's uh, commercial arbitration or whether it's investment treaty, whatever it is. So that's just um, part of, of what I do. <laughs> A brief of what he does. So I liked something that you see that I think is very profound, that we normally sit at our small sphere of influence and think that, you know, you don't really go out of your way to understand what is somebody else doing to help me achieve what I want to do. And I remember something. I attended a conference uh, with the Tolberg Edison Foundation when it came to Kenya. And they had a, a conference where they partnered with the center, with the Senate of Kenya. And there was a lovely lady. I don't remember her name. It's Indian. And I don't want to, to say it. I say it wrong. And she was, the, I think, the advisor to the, to the president of Columbia University. And she said something that stuck with me for a very long time. She said, as you walk through your life, you need to understand two things. What is your sphere of influence and what is your sphere of interest? And this, I think, is a lot, that's something that people within even the social media space don't understand. I personally, as a young person, and probably everybody in this room, cares about climate change. But is it really something that you put in your work to ensure that we enforce mechanisms to ensure that we tackle climate change? Or is your interest in arbitration or facilitation of global trade? Mm -hmm. So just because something is not is within your sphere of interest doesn't mean that you cannot reach out and see how do we create synergies? How do we create partnerships to ensure that we all work towards the same goal? So no issue really is isolated. Climate change there's something that arbitration can do. There's something that global trade can do. There's something that 
a young person that is global, like is mobilizing young people in the slums and the refugees to, to attain education. Because if you're talking about education, you're talking about young people starting to think of innovative ways for us to tackle climate change. So I like that even Mr. Ohana just sitting here is realizing, oh, Kendra does some important work. And he's like, wow, he does some important work. And I think that's amazing. I think that's a first step for us realizing the goal for this very episode. Um, Mr. Um, 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 uh, Mr. Amos Wagora said something I found very interesting. He said that he's doing, they're trying to reduce steps to how young, you know, people within the business climate can be able to export and import. You see, when you're seated in your ivory tower, you're thinking, what does Kentrin do really? What does it do? You know, why are they not reducing this? But you can see the challenges that his work has because most of these state agencies are mandated by the law. They have authority to say that I want this step. It's important. It's paramount that people follow this step before they import coffee. But you see, it's very easy to sit and, and point out what somebody is not doing. You don't really understand the challenges of their work. But understanding that is a first step for us saying, how do we have solution-oriented conversation instead of pointing fingers? So thank you for your very powerful introduction. Thank you. Guys, I could clap for you, but I don't think that's, I don't think you can do that in a podcast. Sarah. Again, we start with the guest. We're sitting shop here, so I think Mr. Agora for the rest of the episode will have that benefit. And the first question is, um, you've already talked about some of the challenges that you're experiencing with facilitating global trade. But over the, the last few years, since you were given your mandate, since 2010, what have been the biggest gains with Kentrade to ensuring that, you know, we are at the forefront of the fourth industrial revolution, that we are leveraging on technology to be more competitive in global trade. Yeah. I think the biggest um, achievement has been actually rolling out that platform yes. um, and moving a very traditional industry, um, which is the maritime or the port sector, um, from a manual um, kind of setup um, in, into using uh, technology for business. Um, of course, you know, the benefit of technology, I need not go into it, but for the port sector, um, it meant that we have faster turnaround time of, um, of cargo. It means cargo moves faster through the ports. Um, you're reducing port congestion. You're able to get then um, those commodities to Wanjiko's um, desk in a much more timely manner. Um, so time and cost really, saving on time and cost. So then the issue was, how do you put in place such a platform and that it is used nationally? Um, and, you know, the platform really, the single window, just to describe it, allows um, that we, the trade community is only dealing with one single platform. Um, you know, government, in, you know, around 2010 had started pushing a lot of agencies, but you need to automate your business process. Yes. Um, but what does that mean? It means if we have 40 regulatory agencies, it means you have to learn or be able to use 40 government agencies. That are being automated. That are being automated, which is not practical. Mm -hmm. So what, you know, and this is part of the work of the UN actually, um, what UNCTAD and you know, quite a number of other partners have come up with is that it's possible to have um, single um, platforms which integrates all these agencies. And we stop building systems with government in mind or government requirements in mind yes. 
but you're building uh, systems with the citizen in mind. Mm -hmm. So you're making it easier for the citizen to interact with government. And really that's what it was all about. That we then built um, a system which we call a single window. Mm -hmm. Okay, window meaning that everyone is using that single window to access access government business Mm -hmm. um, in the back end. So that's what we have achieved now. We have 37 government agencies on that platform. Um, all of them, the trade community, um, we have about 14,000 now um, within the trade um, community who lodge their documents. Importers, exporters, carrying agents, shipping lines, who lodge their documents um, into this system um, through this one platform. Now the government agencies then um, receive the applications. Um, some of them have built their systems but the front-facing or the user-facing platform is only the single window. So they'll process this, mm-hmm. you know, the applications in the back end, make their approvals, um, and then, so that visibility across the supply chain then is present. So that's what we've achieved. If you ask me what's the biggest achievement, it has been delivering this. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, then the benefit is obvious yeah. um, in terms of time, cost, mm-hmm. um, you know, we are the economy saves about two billion per year wow. by because of the use of this system. Um, this is based on a study from the World Bank, um, and that was about two years back. So I'm sure um, the benefit has gone up. Compliance, um, you know, you don't find the river road certificates now mm-hmm. finding their way into the process. Um, you know, so just cutting all that out, um, revenue for government has gone up. Um, then, of course, then the whole visibility and transparency around. Um, that entire process. So that has been achieved. Oh, great. And you know, I was just thinking about it right now. And ironically, uh, 2020, the, well, you know, when we started having this global pandemic, it's the, the year that ushered in the decade of action. Yes. So most people right now, when you're talking about benefits of systems or programs that have been created by either state agencies or the UN or private sector, one of the, the key questions that people are asking, as the pandemic wiped out, those benefits. Although I will not let you ask, answer that question right now. Yeah. First, go back to our facilitator, you know, and ask him a question too about partnerships and how does arbitration, how does arbitration create an ecosystem where partnerships is the one that you know, Mr. Wangora is dealing with. You know, state agencies facilitating a single window system for all for access for global trade facilitation. How does arbitration play its role? in ensuring that, you, I don't know, care for this, very fragile partnerships, in ensuring that they thrive and more people want to create synergies to work together. What role does arbitration play? Um, that's a very um, interesting question, the way you, you, you put it. Um, but before I answer your question, yes. I'm just going to ask him something. Perfect. Um, because I think it will, it, it will dovetail into what I think... You know, I need to speak to your question. Because when I listen to him, yes. <clears throat> in my mind, I see the pitfalls, the what I see, how you need to deal with resistance. I know. Massive, massive resistance. Oh, yeah. I can see the frustration in your face. Like yeah. the person is not seeing Mr. Wanda's frustration. No, He's very frustrated. Because honestly, we began a digitization journey for the judiciary a long time ago as a firm yeah yeah and my uh, in beginning it 
it was the result of fortunately having been able to, to travel and witness how other um, how other courts, how other nutrition centers run. When I was appointed to the Nairobi Center for International Nutrition, for instance, we had the opportunity to visit Singapore. Yeah. to visit the Singapore International Nutrition Center. You know, it's it's become a leader. Mm. And you know, Singapore is yes. a leader in shipping, trade, yeah. all that. And it gives you a window into the efficiencies. It gives you a window into everything that you'd like to achieve by digitization. But the downside is you also begin to um, appreciate the resistance that you no doubt need. Because the people who are invested in the inefficiencies, yes. they actually invested in them, yes. yeah? the, and that investment may be because it will eliminate positions, it may be because it will eliminate the river road certificates, <laughs> it may be because it will eliminate the opportunities for um, uh, side action, let me just put it that way, <laughs> yeah? and, 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 and so I can see the, the task that you have to deal with. And when I look at the court system, um, and fortunately for us, you you already you asking about COVID. COVID has accelerated digitization That's in right. the court system. You know, without COVID, we would not be where we are today with digitizing the court system. And in that sense, I come back to arbitration. The um, the benefit of arbitration and the reason why arbitration is so attractive to trade, especially international trade, is because arbitration is more responsive. Because with trade, digital communication um, is all about responsiveness, timeliness, being able to reach uh, who you want to reach, when you want to reach them, and to be able to get a response in a timely manner that addresses your needs and your concerns. Now, arbitration is user-centric because with arbitration you focus on who are the parties, what do they want, how are they seeking to achieve this. And in order to be an efficient, effective arbitrator, you must have an open mind. You must be able to appreciate that this is he's a, he's, he's, he's a Kenyan businessman, and is Indonesia. Yeah. And so I must be able to appreciate the different cultural, yes. different cultures. What culture is it coming from? What culture is it coming from? What legal system is it coming from? What legal system is it coming from? What um, trade expectations do, does he have? What does he have? And be able to marry those and put them together and create a forum yes. that is then attractive for this person or this group of people to, to interact and have their dispute resolved in a timely manner. Um, for, for, for a very long time, the court system has functioned on the basis of it is the court system, you know, that is at the center of, of, of the justice system. Yes. Rather than the litigants, the users. The people. And, and one of the things, and, you know, about, about maybe four years now, ago now, I attended um, some um, negotiation course at Harvard. One of the speakers uh, referred us to a book which still
still runs in my head, which is the question, is justice, no, is the courthouse a place or a service? Oh, wow. Yeah. Very profound. Yeah, very profound. Because you've got to ask yourself that question, you know. And I think it, it applies to anything that you look at. Is the port a place or a service? It may be where the ship docks. Yes. Yeah. But if the shop, ship docks and stay there, there will be nothing. There will be nothing. Sure. And, and so um, when you think about things like those, then when you begin to focus on it as a service, yes rather than a place or a forum or you uh, being you centric then you, you you have a more you're more open-minded about it now so let me just come back now to your question about arbitration and my experience with the nairobi international arbitration Center. yes what we seek to do for instance is to accredit arbitrators and because we're talking about trade let me talk about international trade uh, and therefore international arbitration. Yes. What you then do is to ensure that the Nairobi Center is available for accreditation to arbitrators globally. Now, what we then try and do is get a, a mix of arbitrators so when you as a user, as a disputant, want to select an arbitrator, you can go into our platform and you can Look at the arbitrator, look at the arbitrator's qualifications. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then perhaps you can even then go and look at that arbitrator's resume and see what has he dealt with, what is his expertise, is it intellectual property, is it um, is it sports, is it what 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 is this person's area of expertise? Yes. And choose that arbitrator and Together with the other party, hopefully you agree, or you agree on a panel. And therefore, you then have the ability to constitute a panel that has expertise in the area of your dispute. And so, when you come to present your dispute, you are not having to start from A, you know? You'll already existing framework. Already framework in terms of knowledge base, in terms of experience, and therefore you hope that the outcome will reflect um, that knowledge. And, and, and that then generates more and more confidence in that system of justice, as opposed to, you know, when, when you take your dispute to court, you draw a judge. You don't it's know... Like yeah. yeah. Fortunately, in Kenya, we now have different uh, divisions of so there's environmental land, there's labor, there's commercial, there's a civil division. So yes, there's a bit of a narrower <laughs> yes. um, area of expertise, but there are other areas of expertise which are so fine, which are so specialized, that you want to be able to ensure that your dispute resolution, the resolver, is... Is at the cutting edge, shall we say? Yes. Yeah? And that's what today's today's world offers you, because today's world it means means that I can go onto my phone and pick Glover or Uber Eats, yeah, and have a menu and decide what I want to eat today. Yeah? Why shouldn't I be able to do that? 
with arbitration. With arbitration, with a, with a, with a, with the manner in which I resolve a dispute, and I think that that's the way. If you break it down to the basic needs of the human being, yes, yeah, and you address those needs, then I think that you're creating a platform that is so much more powerful, and that then becomes much more attractive to to users. In a roundabout way, I hope that that's a sort of answer. Oh, it, that it has, and you just um, made me think of something. When we when the acted hub, I think last year during COVID nineteen, uh, right now we're moving towards the the fifteenth ministerial conference for acted, and also the third uh, acted youth forum. And you know that the reason why the ministerial conference is a is a, a place of interest is because it sets the the priorities for Anted for the next four years when it comes to global trade. And you know, what does the UN the UN focus on when it comes to ensuring that countries, especially in the developing world, you know, thrive when it comes to global trade? And you say something that made me thinking of that because you say that you need to create platforms, you need to create organizations, even when you're talking about the civil society that are working for the person that you're trying to help. And then so when we're trying to come up with a project at Kakuma Refugee Camp to ensure that refugees are working towards, we're creating ecosystems for refugee entrepreneurship to thrive. I personally, I will admit, went with the mindset of how I want to help these refugees. You know, I, I thought I knew what they wanted. I, I came into the meeting coming to tell them that this is a timeline of how we're going to help you. And when we went into the meeting with our coordinator, very lovely lady, Linda O'Carroll, we learned that when in Kakuba, they are getting to, not really, they, every organization comes with a training menu. It comes with a training menu for entrepreneurship. It comes with a course on how you can become an entrepreneur. But nobody really is thinking about the tools to create an ecosystem for entrepreneurship to thrive. Nobody is thinking about access to banking. Nobody is thinking about, okay, uh, we have already given them tools for entrepreneurship. Are we creating a legal framework that allows these people to move in and out to Kakuma to bring in the goods for entrepreneurship? So it's very important, not only in arbitration and global, global trade, to have the user in mind. Because once you have the user in mind, you're able to tackle the issue. You're able to understand from their lived experiences, how do they want this service to work for them? So I think that was a very important point for you to bring in. And yeah, I can say that we didn't go there with the mindset that we had. It's changed. And we were so inspired by the resilience, you know, the power that those young refugees have with nothing. There are people that have thriving businesses. And we were like, ah, maybe we, didn't, we don't need to come with this kind of mindset anymore. We need to listen to them and what do they need for us to assist them? Because everybody needs assistance, but you cannot come with, with, your, yeah, with yes. your mindset on how I want to assist you. And there's something that you said, you've said a lot that I wanted to comment on. You talked about going to Singapore and I've watched an interview with Mr. Agora also. You went to Singapore. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I want to comment on that. Yeah, you went to Singapore. <laughs> you went to Singapore, I think, to do, a, I don't know. Our system is from Singapore. Yes. I'm not surprised. <laughs> no, no, no. Okay. Yes, it's okay. The and something you said um, about resistance. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's one on the product. Um, I mean, what allows you to succeed, really, um, in my experience, is the product you choose. Yes. Um, and two, um, then the people issues. Yes. You know, and what you are talking about. The you know there are beneficiaries of you know that traditional system. So of course they fight you about this whole thing. But largely, if your product is right, yes. if the technology won't fail you, because you see, <laughs> you'll get to a point where you also start doubting yourself. That's true. So your technology needs to be resilient. Yeah. Resilient that it will be able, it will work despite all the challenges that are thrown at you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
And I think the best choice we made was, was go to Singapore mm. and pick that product. Yeah. Um, so that already halfway um, assures you of success. Mm. And you have to deal then with the people issues. And really it's the changing the mindset. Um, and it's about communication. Um, and taking time really to communicate and, you know, explain, you know, explain what really works and, and why you're bringing in um, this change. And also then um, dealing with interests. How are they going to benefit from, from the new state of, of working? <laughs> um, are they losing? Yeah. If they are losing in this way, then how do, you uh, how, do, how do they benefit from exactly that compromise? Um, and I'm sure that's what arbitration is also about. Yes. You know? So yes, I mean, resistance, definitely. I mean, we, we, we probably spent about $3.5 million dealing with change. Yes. We have a whole change unit in Kentrin. <laughs> Um, their work is to deal with change management. Mm -hmm. um, we have now what we call um, change agent networks. So we grouped the stakeholders, the partners, government agencies, <laughs> um, shipping lines, mm -hmm. uh, clearing and forwarding. And we have continued to meet them on a quarterly basis. Mm -hmm. um, and we let them drive the show. We let them um, drive those forums yeah. um, so that they feel they own this product. Yes. I mean, that's how we have managed to overcome that. Mm -hmm. continuously explaining to them. But of course, then it gets to a point, and you know the change curve, it gets to a point where... It's not working. No, no, no. They, initially, then they resist, and you know you get to a plateau. Um, then they start seeing the benefit. But mm -hmm. you know that's when the fight really... So the curve is coming down. But before it completely plateaus, then the benefit starts rolling, up, rolling in for everyone. They start seeing the benefit in time. Um, they start seeing cost savings. For government agencies, then they started seeing revenue start going up. Yeah. So then everyone gets on board. And then they become your champions. So they become our champions. Yes. So and you then quickly identify, um, you know, the initial champions. Yeah. You know, um, the quick, um, the guys who board quickly. And of course, in COVID, for us has been an opportunity um, because when those who are fighting the process, then suddenly everyone went technology. <laughs> so yeah. they had no choice but to get on board. So we've actually reduced our budget on change. We're no longer really going out to look for them. They're coming to us now. Um, because then the, the champions then are more than the naysayers. Yeah. So it's been a process, you know, a oh, journey. Yes. And just going back to the value proposition that we promised our listeners is that these conversations are aimed at impact, pointing out an impact on how every single person is trying to change the world. Yes. And second, the other value proposition is that we are designing these conversations to have long-term value. Because right now you're already given somebody probably dealing with a business or a young person trying to get into the business on, if I'm getting into a space where there's already an established system, how do I change mindset? And I liked what you're saying that you have a whole agency on trying to change people's mindsets. Because one of the things I have learned personally is that mindset is a privilege. Mm -hmm. The way you see your work is a privilege because it is informed by how you, maybe you've traveled, how you see the world. Singapore, you see, for you guys, yeah. maybe you went at the same time, you should check back. Maybe <laughs> no, no. <laughs> you were there at the same time, and you just give it to the, yeah, share notes. How Singapore is, you know, how you see the world and how the books that you read, the people that you surround yourself with. And I think there's a foundation, I can't remember where I read it, but they're saying that the most important skill for anyone, young, whatever age you are, is learning how to learn. Having an unmade up mind because the world is changing. Nobody's working the way they used to work anymore.